The men couldn't stand much more of this. We had had it for four days and were hungry, hollow-eyed, exhausted. Some of them were losing their minds. One of our best sergeants had broken, his nervous system shattered, and was whimpering like a baby. He was a fine young fellow and a brave soldier, but there was a limit to human endurance. Second Lieutenant Joe Lawrence, 113th Infantry Regiment, 29th Division, AEF, north of Ormond Farm, on or about October 15th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 81, A Limit to Human Endurance. Glad to be back here with you all and looking forward to this episode. I hope you have enjoyed the recent interview episodes with Paul Reed and Matt Dixon, who both have fantastic Great War podcasts. If you haven't listened yet, do go back after this episode and give those episodes a listen. These two gentlemen are absolutely fascinating and so damn impressive with their knowledge of World War I. Some Patreon shout-outs to three new sergeants, sergeants in French, to Ingve from Norway, Dave from the UK, fellow member of the Great War Group, and Ed. Thank you all. For signing up to support the show. Many thanks to listener Peter from Western Carolina University who recently donated through PayPal. Peter, I look forward to getting to the 81st Division, which fought in the last days of the Meuse-Argonne campaign. And it may sound crazy, folks, but there is an end to this battle, and I can actually see it in the distant haze. It's there. Shout out to some reviews on iTunes. To Sean the Salty Lad from Scotland. Glad you're loving the show, man. To Eidek from Norway. I'm happy that I am helping you get through your work days, man. And 308 Cast Bullet. Thanks, bro. Your review has left me speechless. Very nicely written. Thank you. Many thanks. As well to Australian listener Nathan, who was out seeding his fields in Western Australia. Nathan listens to the BFWWP as he does his work, and it reminds me of listener and friend Clark up in Saskatchewan, Canada. You do important work, Nathan, and I am glad I can help you pass the time. Thank you all so very much. We'll do the Patreon and PayPal pitches next time. For now, 
Let's go ahead. Let's get back to the front. When we left the Meuse-Argonne last time, we were on the right bank of the River Meuse. There, the American First Army had expanded its operations by ordering its subordinate French 17th Corps to attack and seize the Meuse Heights on October 8, 1918. At the end of that day, the heights had not yet been taken from the Germans and Austro-Hungarians, but American and French troops had bitten into the enemy lines there. German General Georg von der Marwitz, commander of the German 5th Army, had immediately ordered a counterattack to push the Americans and the French back. Somehow, the Germans scraped together 10,000 men from five depleted divisions for the attack, and on the morning of October 9th, they hit the line of the American 29th and French 18th divisions. The Doughboys of the 29th Blue and Gray Division and the Poilus of the French 18th Division repulsed the attack handily, and the Germans left a thousand more of their men killed wounded or captured on the shattered battlefield. Many of these men were from the German 102nd and 177th Infantry Regiments. In the area of the American 33rd Division, however, the Germans were more successful. Straddling a front from the Meuse itself to the western edge of the Bois de Consenvois, northeast of its namesake village, the 33rd launched an attack at the same time of the German counterattack. Following a night of endless gas shelling from the Germans that soaked the battle area, American artillery replied with a 6,000-round preparatory barrage that tore up the German lines. At 0640, the Doughboys of the 132nd Infantry Regiment launched themselves from the southern end of the Bois de Chaume itself northeast of Consenvois village. The Doughboys headed north. Advancing north exposed the regiments and therefore the division's right flank, but the Americans kept on going. 100 meters out from Bois de Chaume, the onrushing Doughboys came under horrific machine gun fire. Bergen-Norway-born Private Berger Lohmann of Company H, 132nd Infantry, volunteered to do something about the heavy enemy fire. Quote, Private Lohmann, voluntarily and unaided, made his way forward after all others had taken shelter from the direct fire of an enemy machine gun. He crawled to a flank position of the gun and, after killing or capturing the entire crew, turned the machine gun on the retreating enemy, end quote. Lohman would be awarded the Medal of Honor the next year, with General Pershing himself pinning it on him. The 132nd pushed through the Bois de Chaume, wiping out the Austrian 5th Regiment. Overall, the 33rd Division advanced through the Bois de Chaume and the Bois Platchen and all the way through to the Giselherlein defenses, briefly reaching the road running from Sivry village to Villeneuve Farm on the slope of the Grande Montagne, one of the group of hills of the Meuse Heights. Sensing an open enemy flank, the Germans of the 102nd Regiment, having failed against the 29th, turned and smashed into the flank of the 33rd Division. 
despite the heroic and sometimes superhuman efforts of men like Private Berger Lohmann and other doughboys that morning, the veteran German Frontkämpfer now put their well-honed skills to work. The Golden Cross soldiers of the 33rd Division were forced to beat a hasty two-kilometer retreat from the Sivry villeneuve ferme road through the Bois de Chaume and Bois Plachen back almost to the day's starting positions. Around 100 doughboys were captured in the retreat. Having been thrown back, the Americans regrouped. On October 10th, the 33rd Division launched new attacks to retake Chaume and Plachen woods. They wrenched Bois de Chaume back from the Germans, pushing their line up even with the village of Sivry-sur-Meuse. The 29th Division's own line was about a mile back from the 33rds, but here the line would not change until the 33rd Division was relieved by the French on October 21st. October 9th on the 29th Division front saw the defeat of the German counterattack in the morning, and through the rest of the day, the 115th and 116th regiments made contact with the 33rd Division on the left and the poilus of the French 18th Infantry Division on the right. On the 10th, the 115th Infantry attacked into the western edge of the Bois de Consenvois, working its way towards Côte de Richen to the north and northeast. Grinding up steep slopes in the Consenvois woods, the Virginia Doughboys of the 115th faced heavy machine gun fire. Reaching the area of Rochelle Hill, the Doughboys held back as an American artillery barrage, for once, laid holy hell on the German positions on the hill. Shells wailed and then slammed into the enemy trenches and shell hole positions for 20 minutes before suddenly lifting. The doughboys rushed in, only to meet Germans themselves rushing out of their surviving dugouts so they could promptly surrender. Pushing over the hill, the American troops eliminated any machine gun nests they found. The doughboys were seized by adrenaline, and a lieutenant later wrote that, quote, Due to excitement and poor shooting on the part of some of our men, some of them, the Germans, escaped. The large number of prisoners captured was an accident, end quote. On the 10th, the 29th unofficially expanded its divisional front to the right as the 57th Brigade took over part of the line in the French sector. It did so under French orders, and the 113th Infantry Regiment came into the line and into the attack. The line here was north of the ruins of aumont pré saint along the eastern edge of the Bois de Brabant-sur-Meuse. 3rd Battalion, 113th Infantry, was to attack from the Bois to the north to take Bois de la Reine and Bois de Chêne. These two woods were to the north of the ruins of Ormont Farm, a farm complex destroyed during the Battle of Verdun and never rebuilt after the war. Northeast of the farm ruins, and thus southeast of the Bois de la Reine and Bois de Chêne, was the Bois d'Ormont a patch of woods that featured the significant Côte 360 inside it. The French were to attack to the right of the 113th and take the farm and Bois Dormont. Commanding a platoon in Company L, 3rd Battalion, was a 23-year-old shavetail, 2nd Lieutenant Joseph Lawrence. 
Hailing from Florence, South Carolina, Lawrence had already been in country for several months, having first been a private in the 118th Infantry Regiment of the 30th Division. Lawrence had been made an officer candidate, had passed the training course, and in true Army fashion, was not reassigned to his home division, but shuttled halfway across France with several others toward the Meuse-Argonne front. He'd been platoon leader for merely a few days when the orders to move up the line came down. Post-war, he wrote his experiences down in a manuscript meant only for his kids, but it luckily saw publication and became Lawrence's memoir, Fighting Soldier, the AEF, in 1918. 3rd Battalion's K and M companies jumped off into the attack that morning. And Lawrence's L Company and Sister I Company waited just long enough to get the proper distance between the attacking and supporting waves. From Lawrence's memoir, quote, The assaulting line met with a withering machine gun and rifle fire, for the Germans had a concealed trench about 150 yards in front of Company M. A heavy enfilading fire came from Ormont Woods on the right. Casualties were heavy. The first assault line was mowed down. Lieutenant Trestrail, commanding Company M, was killed. Lieutenant Webb, badly wounded. And my friend Fred Sexton was next in command. The line staggered, but managed to push slowly forward. Then the French on the right staggered, broke, and went back, leaving our right flank, Company M, in the air. Company K was also having trouble, for the line of advance was up a long, steep slope, open for the most part, dotted with two or three small patches of woods. Company K, struggling forward under heavy fire, suffered many casualties and obliqued to the right, leaving a dangerous gap between their left and the position of the 116th Infantry. Now, Both flanks of the battalion were in the air, and Company I was thrown in to extend the line to the right and protect that flank. And we, Company L, were thrown in to extend the line to the left, fill the gap, and assault the Germans in that sector. Because of the failure of the French, two companies from the 1st Battalion in reserve moved up to protect our right flank. When we occupied the trenches momentarily, I inspected my platoon in haste and found everything in order except that most of the men had discarded their packs. They appeared in good spirits in spite of their perilous position. We were in the trench only a few minutes when the events described above occurred and Grassy called the officers together, Mims, Derrickson, and me, and said we were to go over immediately. He explained our line of advance, after which we returned to our positions. He then gave the signal. I leapt to the trench parapet, followed by my men, formed them in line of combat groups, squads, and single file, and quickly deployed them, for the fire was so heavy. Lieutenant Grassy, the man whom I had so disliked upon first encounter, handled the company well. He was cool, collected, and directed our advance with skill. We went forward by rushing a few paces and falling in shell holes, if available. If not available, we fell flat on the ground. While we were advancing, the German artillery opened on us for the first time since the assault began, and this made matters worse, for the shells fell thick and fast, coming toward us screaming and screeching, louder and louder, striking the ground in front or behind with a deafening, 
demoralizing crash, hurling dirt and debris all over us. It was remarkable we were not killed. I saw a shell hit between two of my men who were not over four feet apart, and they were covered with dirt and badly shocked, but otherwise unhurt. I had difficulty keeping my line straight and moving forward in the midst of this chaos, and the men gathered in groups, in spite of all the sergeants and I could do, but we did fairly well. Resistance was so determined that the other company stopped about halfway up the slope. My platoon was pressing forward when I received word from Grassy to halt where I was because the other companies were held up and could not advance. Sergeant Matson and I occupied a shell hole, and the other men crawled into shell holes. About 50 yards ahead was a small patch of woods, and I observed that when we advanced from our present position, if we could, about half my line would be in the woods and the other half still in the open. I planned to get as many men into the woods as I could. End quote. Lieutenant Lawrence watched as companies K and M plunged ahead into the woods and soon became disorganized. He deployed his own platoon in a single line to keep them together in the thick underbrush. Lieutenant Grassy, a New Jersey man and the Company L commander, approached from the direction of the retreating Germans. He ordered Lawrence to clear out a machine gun nest that lay ahead. Lawrence came up with a plan two squads each to the left and right, and he himself would take two squads and rush the gun from the front. Orders given, his NCOs took their men and moved out accordingly. Lawrence took his men down a narrow road in the woods in the direction of the enemy nest. Quote, I decided to move on a little farther, hoping to ascertain the strength of the enemy, and had no idea he was so close at hand. As Stone and I turned a bend in the road, we were startled to see a large body of Germans in the road ahead. I must have had only one or two glances at them, but saw a lot in that short time. There was a group of men, presumably officers, studying what appeared to be a map in the hands of one of them. Several soldiers were standing around, leaning on rifles, and thirty or forty more men were in column on the road. Our sudden appearance electrified them into activity. Stone saw them first, made one exclamation, Bosh! and gave me a shove that caused me to trip and fall in the bushes on the side of the road. He fled precipitously, and we did not find him for three weeks when he was arrested and later convicted for desertion in the face of the enemy and sentenced to five years in Leavenworth. My fall probably saved my life, however, as the rifle fire that followed passed over me. I had a glance at a German kneeling and aiming in my direction. I jumped to my feet, somewhat concealed by the bushes, fired two shots from my pistol at the Germans, and turned and ran with speed through the woods toward my men. The bullets whistled, but none struck me. I ran into the road after it had made a bend out of sight of the Germans, and saw my men standing in the road startled at Stone's rapid retreat to the rear and the rifle fire ahead. When they saw me burst out of the woods at a high rate of speed, they did not wait for a command and turned as one man and beat a hasty but orderly retreat up the road. I overtook them a few yards in advance of the pursuing Germans, where a narrow-gauge railroad crossed our path, and managed to halt them and form a line with the man lying prone behind the railroad, which afforded a small measure of protection. Several were wounded by our pursuers before they could fall behind the railroad. 
One man was shot through both legs and fell on the side of the railroad toward the enemy and lay there conscious with the fire of both sides passing a few inches over his body. He pleaded for us to pull him in, but we could not reach the four feet to him without exposing ourselves to certain death. Fifteen or twenty men from the scattered Company K joined us as we rushed for the railroad track, and we found fifteen or twenty more men behind the track when we got there. Welcome reinforcements, for we did not get behind the track a second too soon, because the Germans were right on us. The instant the men were in position, they fired a volley with deadly effect into the onrushing Germans, who were fifteen yards away. Although we could not see them well for the thick underbrush, I knew we were doing execution. Horrible screams of pain rent the air from the German side. Their piercing, blood-curdling cries startled me. I feared we had fired on some of our men intermingled with the Germans, and they were screaming to us to hold up. Again, I thought we had killed some women, for we had heard wild stories about the Germans having women soldiers in their ranks. Neither assumption was correct, as we learned a little later. The screams came from dying German machine gunners of the 102nd Saxon Regiment. End quote. Lawrence organized his men quickly as the Germans came up the road and at them. Low on ammunition, Joe Lawrence passed the word that he was going to order a bayonet charge. He ordered it, but only he, two sergeants, and about ten doughboys charged behind him. They rushed forward a few meters, but quickly had to turn back. It was getting too hot in the area, and the Germans themselves had pulled back some 30 to 50 meters. The young South Carolina lieutenant pulled back to his line, which was reinforced with M Company, and just in time, one of the NCOs pointed to German infantry advancing towards them from about a kilometer away. This was a huge problem. Lawrence and his men already had a group of Germans in front of them. These Germans were currently on the run and disorganized, but it wouldn't be long before the reinforcements crossed the valley and joined up with their countrymen. At that point, the doughboys of the 113th, low on ammunition and tired, would be overwhelmed. Lieutenant Lawrence had to act. He did. Quote, I passed the word down the line, gave the signal, and we went over again with the same experience. All the men did not get up. Lavender and I rushed back and with strong language and other persuasion got the men up and in line, and we rushed forward in fairly good formation through the woods. Lavender, with his rifle at carry, bayonet fixed, of course, leapt ahead of the line and rushed alone twenty or thirty yards ahead. He was an inspiration to the men. I rushed forward and overtook him, and he and I reached the German line together. For a while, my observations were quite limited. I saw only what was immediately before me in the thick woods. My men and the Germans mingled in the thick underbrush, man to man. The struggle was brief, for the Germans began to fall back, disappearing in the woods, our men in pursuit. Lavender and I were the first to reach the Germans, and we picked out two riflemen that were side by side. Lavender lunged with his bayonet at the one on the left, who jumped aside and fled into the woods. The other one hesitated for a split second, then turned to follow his comrade, and I fired at him with my pistol, the bullet striking just above the ear and tearing off the top half of his head. He crumpled to the ground, a gruesome sight, 
I saw him in the spot where he fell four days later. The Germans fled down the hill, through the woods, and into an open field at the foot of the hill. Here, our line halted. The men knelt, coolly took aim, and fired round after round at the fleeing Germans. The execution was heavy. Thirty or forty were shot down, most of them killed. As I look back on the scene, it is horrible. But then, while the heat of battle was upon us, it was thrilling. The Germans that were struck would leap into the air and fall to the ground writhing and twisting. Some would crawl a few yards and lie still. We did not kill them all, and most of them reached their trench and disappeared. I promptly began organizing my line. We withdrew a short distance up the hill, through the thick woods, to a path that ran parallel to the line we faced. The path afforded the only opening in the underbrush and was bordered on the side toward the Germans by a rise of about a foot, affording somewhat of a makeshift breastwork. The field of fire was poor, as just in front of us the underbrush was so thick we could see only a few feet, but the ground in front of us was so heavily wooded and broken with deep ravines that the enemy could not approach us without great difficulty and without making enough noise to warn us. It was a position that could only be held with a concentration of men on the alert, as the ear and not the eye had to be depended upon. The line crossed the road that ran into the German lines, and on which Stone and I had stumbled into the German advance. On the left, the line ran down the hill to the edge of the woods, then turned almost at a right angle to the rear, where it stopped. There was a wide gap between our left and the right of the nearest unit, which I later learned was Derrickson's platoon. End quote. Having organized his line in the Bois de Chênes, north of Ormont Farm and Bois Dormont, Joe Lawrence and the men of the 3rd Battalion, 113th Infantry Regiment, dug in and sat in the same positions for the next eight days. It was a waking nightmare. From the night of October 13th and all into the day of the 14th, the Germans plastered the American lines with shells. The Germans were close enough to the doughboys that any rustling of equipment brought a cacophony of machine gun and rifle fire, and the doughboys would respond with a wall of fire of their own. Sometimes the firing would suddenly flare up, and then flare out as quickly as it had begun. And all through this, the whistling of iron in the air, and the jarring impact when shells tore at the earth with demon's nails. After four days of German counterattacks and constant shelling from the enemy, Lieutenant Lawrence wrote, quote, The men couldn't stand much more of this. We had had it for four days and were hungry, hollow-eyed, exhausted. Some of them were losing their minds. Monaghan, one of our best sergeants, had broken. His nervous system shattered and was up in Grassy's dugout whimpering like a baby. He was a fine young fellow and a brave soldier but there was a limit to human endurance, end quote. But they went on for four more days after that, suffering from deaths, ghastly wounds, near-constant rain and cold, and poor food. Lieutenant Joe Lawrence, his company, his 113th Infantry Regiment, and the 29th Division wouldn't be relieved until the 18th of October. That morning... Doughboys of the 102nd Infantry, 26th Yankee Division, 
came in to take over their line. Joe Lawrence and his men's experience helped show us what it meant to be a doughboy in the Meurs-Argonne in October of 1918. We have entered a period of real grinding against the German line, and the suffering of the American troops was horrific and woeful at the same time. The next couple of episodes, we will focus more on this period, with the next episode taking us to the right of the 113th to its sister regiment, the 114th Infantry. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at www1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.